Hey, what's up, everyone? We're back with another episode of the Sons of Sequoia podcast, the seventh episode. SOS 7. Uh, today, we're just going to take a look at some of the things we've talked about throughout the week and uh, circle back to them. So yesterday, we did a full episode on Game Stonks. And... Uh, and some stuff definitely happened with with GameStop, uh, while we were while we were sleeping, while we weren't podcasting. Um, let me just pull up the stock ticker right now. It is currently trading at three hundred and thirty six. It's up one hundred and forty two dollars or seventy three percent for the day since it opened just a couple hours ago. So the wow. vol the volatility and the excitement is still there around that stock, um, but. Do you want to talk about what happened yesterday, or should I? No, go ahead. Um, so there's a few apps that people use, you know, uh, TD Ameritrade. They can use traditional brokers like uh, Charles Schwab. But one of the big ones was Robinhood. And Robinhood is a new startup that allows you trades without fees, brokerage fees. And that's what a lot of these retail investors for GameStop were using to purchase the GameStop stock. And Robinhood yesterday sort of unilaterally decided, you know what, we're not going to let you buy GameStop. You can sell it, but you're, you can't buy it. And of course, this angered everybody because it just it doesn't seem right, does it? <laughs> And it fed right into the hands of the people who short traded. Yeah, it's it's a, a move that would certainly help the institutional investors who were being burned, not allowing anyone else to buy the stock. Yep. Because um, uh, Chris Cuomo, actually, the CNN anchor, interviewed the CEO of Robinhood, and it was pretty disastrous for this guy. He was saying, we wanted to protect our customers, so we did this. And Chris Cuomo was saying, this is traded on the New York Stock Exchange, and it's regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commissions. So the New York Stock Exchange could have made the determination that this stock on its listing is a danger and stopped trading on it, but they didn't make that determination. The Security and Exchange Commission could have made the determination from a governmental level that Something screwy is going on here and we need to halt trading. But they didn't make that determination. Robinhood, as the portal through which retail investors buy stock, single-handedly made that determination where the people above them that would have a better view of it didn't make that determination. So the effect was retail investors couldn't buy GameStop. But if you were a hedge fund, if you were a money man, if you were a market maker, there was no restriction on buying the stock. So it seems almost as if when people say the game is rigged, the reason why they say that is because they're right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so how do you feel about this, uh, platform not allowing you to buy a specific stock? And uh, oh, also, the CEO hinted at uh, one of their big funders was... Uh, probably getting hurt. I mean, he didn't say this explicitly, but he also said he alluded to the fact that 
Robinhood might have liquidity issues if this kept happening. You know, if the they kept losing money on this stock. And then they said, do you have liquidity issues? And he said, no, no, we don't have any liquidity issues. We're the number one app on the app store. So uh, he was talking out of both sides of his mouth. He didn't seem particularly uh, uh, forthcoming, if that makes, if, if, if you get my drift. I don't know exactly yeah. how to put it. Yeah. And uh, I think it was, fa I think, uh, yeah, David, it was fascinating because they uh, they start reacting to the big guys and uh, and they say, OK, well, um, I see everyone who's buying stock uh, and selling stock uh, are the little guys here. And so we're just going to stop it. You know, you can you can. Uh, so they're going to stop that here at my level. And so that plays right into the hands of the, as you say, the big traders. And I'm gonna I'm gonna put something up on the screen. We talked about this guy yesterday, Chamath Palihapitiya. Uh -huh. He's an early investor in Facebook. He's a billionaire. He is now he's an activist investor. He went on CNBC, and I told you that this interview got uh, deleted. I was able to find it last night on YouTube, but now it's taken down again. Um. So. Uh, he told the CNBC guy, and I'm just paraphrasing, so don't, it's not a quote, but he said, listen, this happens all the time. Just because this time you lost doesn't mean you get to change the rules. That's what he <laughs> said. Um, so here's his pinned tweet, and then this tweet that he tweeted 15 hours ago. So the pinned tweet is from 22 hours ago, and then we'll read what he said 15 hours ago. Uh, we'll just throw it up on the screen for everyone to see. Pin tweet. In moments of uncertainty, when courage and strength are required, you find out who the true corporatist scumbags are. Wow. Oh. And then, here's, this one's perhaps even more telling. I remember when I met the Robinhood app founders. They were raising their seed, Series A, and Series B funding. I passed. Why? Optimize for integrity whenever possible. Because integrity compounds and assholes will fuck you. Hashtag delete Robinhood. So some strong language from billionaire Chamath Palihapitiya. Wow. And I think you see that on, on Shark Tank, just sort of to take it down to a, a level that more people can understand. A lot of these billionaire activist investors, they invest in people, not really in ideas. Mm -hmm. so, so the idea of a zero brokerage fee platform on which individuals can trade stocks and the retail customer can have the same skin in the game as as anyone else you know they're not getting screwed so they can they can do it uh they can operate however they want in the in the stock market that's a good idea but if it's run by someone who lacks integrity and i don't know whether or not the robin hood app founder lacks integrity i just know that chamath Pali hapatia seems to think that he does um it's not a good investment because you invest in people, you don't invest in ideas. Yeah, and I think like in the Shark Tank, they, they're the same way. Mm -hmm. I mean, they'll certainly invest in ideas if it's a good idea, but uh, the, they'll invest in the people first. Even, even with a good idea, the poor person, they can make it fail. You can take a weak idea, not a bad idea, but a weak idea with a good person, and they can make it work. Mm-hmm. So integrity as a seed compounds uh, success. Yeah. Um, 
I think that this goes back to the story you told yesterday of the Harvard business student whose business plan got a C or a D or, or whatever. And he said, well, you know, they may have given my, my grade academically might have been a, a C. But I think it's a good idea. And he was a hard worker and a smart guy and he was a, a doer. And he went and he built FedEx. So academically, there were people that had projects that got an A. Are those projects better? Well, in the academic sphere, maybe. But are those projects multi-billion dollar companies today? No, they're not. Success is a lot more than just a good idea. And uh, and uh, it wasn't really uh, the C. Uh, it, that was lost. We didn't really know what it was. Uh, I think one thing for sure, it wasn't an A. Uh, but the idea there is that, you're right, David, it probably was academically not an A. Uh, he could not have... Uh, had all the uh, T's crossed and I's dotted, and it probably wasn't that that good. But then, well, the business plan wasn't that good. But the idea was was novel. The idea could work if you had the right people behind it, and he was the right person. But he was going to carry it through. And I think the key the key to good ideas is not just a good idea. It's two things. One, you don't give up and you keep going even in the face of failure, but two, you get lucky. Yeah. <laughs> you just get lucky, but you don't give up. And especially when you have failure, just keep going. And so, you know, there's a, there's a lot to uh, this idea. So I think in, in universities, they should say, uh, well, even though you get a B or a C, um, academic, I would never say that this, this is not going to work, is that uh, it could be a better plan but it doesn't mean it won't, it won't work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that also, I mean, planning is important from a business standpoint, obviously. But sometimes the plan isn't everything. You know, sometimes the timing, um, the breaks that you get, like you said, you get lucky. Uh, and that's what people are trying to, to say. We need to stop these retail investors from buying GameStop. Because it's not worth 300 and whatever it is a share right now. It's not worth 322. It closed at 200 last night. It's up $120 per share. Well, it was overvalued at 200. We got to stop people from buying it because when it's 322, it's it's even more overvalued. Well, what what Chamath was telling this interviewer is, you're saying these people are too dumb to know what they're doing, and so they need to be protected from themselves. So we need to sort of take away their ball and say they can't play anymore. Only the billionaires can play. And it's like, that's not how the free market works. Uh, also, before we go on any further, we're not financial advisors. We're not brokers. And this is not advice. This is just us sort of reacting to the news. This is just us talking to each other. Yeah, we're just talking. and We're just talking. Nothing I'm just that, saying. Nothing that we say should be construed as legal or financial advice. Just... To get that out there, correct? Uh, absolutely. We're just observing these things as well. What about, we're just throwing ideas out. Mm -hmm. This is not advice. Uh, we're just talking and throwing ideas around. I mean, so they're saying, oh, these retail investors don't know what they're doing. And it's like, well, it looks like the retail investors are transferring dozens of billions of dollars of wealth from hedge funds into their own pockets. And 
You're saying they don't know what they're doing? It, to me, it seems like the hedge funds didn't know what they were doing. <laughs> they were out there on a limb taking this risk, and they got bit by it. And now they want someone to step in so that they don't have to pay the piper. That doesn't seem right to me. Well, I don't know. I think they knew what they were doing, uh, but they got caught at it. Yeah, their hand was in the cookie jar, so to speak. Yeah, their hand was in the cookie jar. They knew what they were doing, but uh, and they've been doing it. Uh, I think. Uh, I think. Uh, who, who said uh, this has always been happening? Uh, they just got. They just. Uh, someone saw it and and uh, cut the string. They, they got caught. Mm-hmm. And, and the direction of the transfer of wealth has changed. So people, you know, we've always transferred wealth from one group to another, but it's usually from the little guy to the big guy. So in an instance where they use the same exact technique to transfer it from the big guy to the little guy, something has to be done. We need to change the rules back. This, the system was designed for this not to happen, I think. That's what, that's what the hedge fund managers are saying. Yeah. Uh, they're crying foul uh, because what the uh, retail investors are doing is what we've been doing for years. And that's, that's foul. They shouldn't be doing what we're doing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they, should, they should be uh, not that. They're not doing it. They shouldn't undermine what we're doing. Yes. It's like uh, like saying you can't impeach the president because it sets a dangerous precedent. Um, and impeachment is a sacred right. And if you do this for the Ukraine thing or for causing an insurrection on the Capitol, you'll cheapen the value of impeachment and it will have no value. And we believe that impeachment is much more sacred than that. And that's why we're voting against impeachment. And then the first day Biden gets into office, a Republican congresswoman introduces articles of impeachment against him. <laughs> and it's like, where did your argument go? Like, uh, so it's like, it's wrong when you do it, but we're going to do it too. <laughs> why are you going to do it? Because you did it. And it's like, um, but you said it was wrong when we did it. It's like, yeah, it was wrong, but you did it. So we get to do it too. And it's like, that's not how it works. You know, if if someone I know murders someone, I say, that was wrong, man. And then I go buy a gun and murder someone else. And they say, why did you murder that person? I said, because you murdered him. <laughs> but you said it was wrong. Uh, I mean, it's, something's either wrong or it's not. I guess it's like Chamath says, integrity compounds. You know? Well, another, another lesser example is baseball. Uh, back in the 1800s, uh, I, I looked at it, it was Candy Cummings. Uh, he threw... He didn't throw the ball straight. He threw it with a curve on it, and the ball curved. Well, it was hard for the hitters to hit it, and so everybody yelled foul. So that's that's not right. You're not supposed to do that. And and so there was a big there was a big uh, uh, issue. It says that's wrong. That's wrong because when you throw the ball, it makes the batters harder to hit, and you might strike them out. And that's not that's not helpful for the batters. You know, you should lob it in there so they can hit it. And he says, yeah, but if I strike him out, we're going to win the game. Uh, yeah, well, you should give us a chance to win, too. And I says, I'm throwing the ball, but you're throwing a curve on it. And so it was a it was a big controversy back in the late 1800s. And so to me, uh, this may be a stretch, uh, but I love that idea that he introduced a curveball and all of a sudden they wanted rules against it. Mm-hmm. Why? Because... Because he could strike batters out and batters couldn't hit it. So wait a minute. If I can't get a hit and win, then I'm going to change the rules. Mm -hmm. You can't. You can't do that. You can't do what makes me not win. 
I says, yeah, but I'm winning. I don't want you to win. I want to win. So I'm going to change the rules so I can win. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, uh, that's interesting. I want to make a joke before we go on. Um, <laughs> Candy Cummings was an American baseball player, but his name sounds like someone that Trump might have paid off before an election. Okay. Um, and uh, let's see here. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, it's like we just had a Hall of Fame, Baseball Hall of Fame. Candy Cummings is in the Baseball Hall of Fame I'm looking up. No one got in, uh, inducted into the Hall of Fame this year again. And there's been a big drought. And the reason why is because the players that are eligible for the Hall of Fame now were the players that dominated during the steroid era. So if we've decided that Mark McGuire doesn't get to be in the Hall of Fame, then we also have to say that... Uh, Sammy Sosa doesn't get in the Hall of Fame, and Barry Bonds doesn't get in the Hall of Fame, and Alex Rodriguez doesn't get in the Hall of Fame. See what I'm saying? Because they yeah. all used steroids, and if we decided that that's a disqualifying factor, the best players from that era don't get to go. Now, if you look at it from the other end of the coin, Mark McGuire hit 70 home runs in 97, I think, and uh, that was when Sammy Sosa, so they toppled Maris's record. Now, we just had Hank Aaron die. Hank Aaron, without the use of steroids, beat Babe Ruth's record. Well, Barry Bonds is sitting here in Pittsburgh and then later in San Francisco, and he says, Mark McGuire is the biggest star in baseball. I'm sitting here not using steroids, and I'm the best player in baseball. I'm going to start taking steroids and show everyone how easy this game is. And that's exactly what Barry Bonds did. He was one of the best players before he ever took steroids. But when he started taking steroids, he was never hitting 74 home runs a year, but he would bat you know, 330 with 40 home runs and 120 RBIs. He was great. But he saw that these people had an unfair advantage and that he was not mentioned as the best player in baseball, but he knew for a fact that he was. So he starts, gets on the juice. Before you know it, he's knocking 74 home runs a year. He beats Hank Aaron's record. And it all seems illegitimate because we all know that he was on steroids. So, I don't know. That's sort of, that's, not quite like the Candy Cummings analogy, because it's more like everyone else is doing it, so why can't I? Candy Cummings invented something, and they're like, We're, we are not used to this. We need you to stop doing it. But it, it kind of plays into this whole uh, uh, GameStop, you can't do that sort of thing, right? Yeah, it's, it's similar, yeah. Like, but, then, but then after Candy Cummings did that, it, it became a controversy, and then finally they said, yeah, well, everybody can do it. Mm-hmm. And so we see, we see screwballs, we see uh, curveballs, drop balls, we have uh, sliders, and uh, we have all kind of balls now. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, some of you know spitballs were were banned too. But uh, so there's always something you can do. Yeah, I mean, uh, but that that's like okay, those fit within the rules of the game, because those are that's skill gap. If you have a wicked curveball. That's not because you use something outside of the game, whereas right. steroids are not skill gap. Uh, so you remove those from the game. Well, I guess maybe what people are saying is, you know, massively sh- taking out a 140% short position and just feeling like the stock will fail. And then people say, well, well if we buy this and we take up all the, we buy up all the free float, they'll be screwed. Well, they're like, you can't do that. But it's like you were taking steroids you know you weren't throwing a curveball to the market 
you were taking steroids, and someone caught you taking steroids, and so you don't get into the hedge fund hall of fame, you go bankrupt. Buying is within the skill gap. There's yeah. nothing wrong with buying. <laughs> yeah. Buying is what everyone does. That's what they're supposed to do. I mean, that's what you can do. That's, uh, he says, well, everyone can't buy. He says, why not? You know, you know that buying is within the skill gap. Mm-hmm. It's a good way to put it, David. Yeah. Buying. And so uh, who was it that said, well, yeah, something needs to be done here. Yeah, something needs to be done. Uh, 104% over over committed. That's what should be done. Yeah. That was the same guy, Chamath, was saying 140%. If you can short 140% of the available shares of a stock, something is wrong. That's sort of like taking steroids. Mm -hmm. That should be banned. That that (laughs) should be considered wrong. Yeah, not people on an app buying a stock because hedge funds got themselves into a sticky position. Yeah. But then again, it's another good time, David, this is not advice and... uh, we're, we're just observing what's <laughs> happening. Uh, we are not experts. Uh, we're not in the area. You know, we're around it. We see it and we're knowledgeable, but we're not there. We're not at the table. We're not making these decisions. We don't see all the different. Uh, uh, one thing I've learned uh, when I was working, uh, if you're not at the table and you hear an issue, uh, outside the boardroom, uh, there's a lot of information that you don't know. And so we're just on the outside just making comments mm-hmm. and say, well, why not? And asking questions. And I think the, the questions from the outside are important because it makes the people on the inside, the people in the room at the table, start thinking about what they're doing in a much broader scale. And uh, so maybe these these conversations are important are very important uh, for the people internally at the table or even in the SEC. <laughs> yeah. Security Exchange Commission. Start rethinking some of this stuff. And you'll never know unless the questions are being asked. Well, I mean, I think that you exploit this rule. You can short 140% of the stock and it's never burnt you before because I think there's kind of a gentleman's agreement among hedge funds. You screw over this company, we'll screw over that company. And never the twain shall meet. Well, these retail investors say there's risk here that these hedge funds have have bought themselves into or sold themselves into, short sold themselves into. And by buying, we can exploit that risk that they've taken on. Mm-hmm. And so they do it. And the hedge fund says, you weren't supposed to do that. Our buddies <laughs> that we went to Ivy League colleges with and we have uh, lunch with at the social club, they don't do that to us. You can't do that either. That's not part of the game. But the thing is, there's nothing in the rule book that says that that's not part of the game. As far as we know. Now that we're about 20 minutes in and we're doing a week in review. Yeah, let's review other things. Well, we did. I think let's sort of stick with this, but go back to our uh, Wednesday show where we talked about razors. Okay. And uh, we talked about Hanlon's razor first. Never attribute to malice that which can be adequately explained by stupidity. Um, so I think that these companies that were short in GameStop, do you think they had malicious intent? I mean, I think they wanted GameStop to fail, therefore they make money, but they, they shorted it at 140%. I think not because, uh, they had any malicious intent. They were just so dumb. They didn't think anything bad could happen to them. 
And that's what people are, the, the hedge funds, they're like, nothing bad's going to happen to us. We can borrow 140% of something. Um, so if you go to a bank and you say, my house is worth $100,000. So I want to put up my house as collateral and you loan me $140,000. Will the bank say yes? You know, 40% of that's unsecured. Uh, if you have borrowed 140% of something that exists, you know, 40% of that can't be given back almost by definition, I feel like. I don't know. So it's... but You don't have it to give back. Yeah, you don't have it to give back. So was it malice or was it stupidity that got them into this position, the hedge funds? What do you think? Well, I, I, I would I wouldn't I wouldn't apply that Hagman's razor directly to this. Uh, I wouldn't say stupidity. Uh, uh, it wasn't malice. I think it was uh, within the rules at the time. Not not within. They didn't violate anything. Uh, that was something that was done. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of like no one said that Candy couldn't th- Candy Cummings couldn't throw a curveball. No one said I couldn't, so I did, and it works. You know, the so wait a minute, foul, foul, you know. And so no one said they couldn't uh, uh, short 140 percent, short, short uh, by 100 percent. No one said they couldn't. So they did. And they've been doing that for a while. So if you do it, so maybe it's OK. I guess that's just how it's done. Mm-hmm. Then all of a sudden it got undermined. And now so they didn't mean to be hurt anyone because they were making money. Uh, and they thought, well, that's just the business. That's business. And um uh, so I, I wouldn't I, I would replace stupidity with something else. I'm not really sure what it was just it was uh, within the rules. It was within the ethics of the business operations or business procedures as they were. Uh, that was challenged and that wasn't challenged just with words. It was challenged with action. They undermined that. And now the actual explanations are coming out. So I wouldn't attribute to malice that which is adequately explained by uh, lack of uh, ethics. <laughs> yeah, lack of circumspection, uh, lack of awareness. Yeah, lack of awareness, lack of circumspection, lack of... But then if they didn't do that, they wouldn't have made the money and they wouldn't be where they are today. So I, it's there again, it's a more complicated issue. If we're not at the table, you know... Uh, you say, well, we've been doing this and everyone's been doing this. And now it's been revealed that, uh, uh-oh, uh, someone took action that undermined what we're doing. Oh, you shouldn't do that. Why? Well, because precedent has been set. For years, we've been short trading, and so we've been doing this. But but now this has shown how that doesn't work. So you shouldn't do that. So, no, well, maybe we should change uh, the short trading uh, rules, okay? Uh, so... But it's a really, again, I think this might be uh, the situation for someone out there, maybe smarter than me, to come up with a new razor. <laughs> yeah. I no. think um, I want to just stay on your analogy of Candy Cummings. I think this is a great analogy, personally, because for our week in review, Wednesday, we talked about Hanlon's razor. We might be, get back to some of those. But on Tuesday, we had Movie Tuesday, and we talked about Dolomite is my name. That's right. So Candy Cummings, he threw this curveball. People are like, whoa, whoa, we haven't seen this before. Whoa, whoa, whoa. And it was effective. Well, Dolomite is my name. He went around to all these studios and he said, me and my friends want to make a movie. 
I'm the star. I'm a fat, middle-aged black guy. And everyone that's going to act in the movie is going to be, the, the, the leading lady is going to be a fat, middle-aged black lady. And everyone that's on my team will be a fat, middle-aged black guy. And all these people said, that's not how Hollywood works. And he said, screw <laughs> it. I'm going to make this movie anyway. Go Dolomite. And, <laughs> and people, they see this on the screen, and it's not what they're used to. And yet they love it because it's, it's real. It's something that, you know, everyone else said, you can't do that. You can't do that. It's not going to work. And he said, I believe in this more than anyone. I'm going to make it work. I don't care if I'm 15 years past my prime and 30 pounds a little too heavy. I'm going to be the leading man. I'm going to be running around beating people up, having sex with the ladies. You know, there'll be explosions and car chases. And then I'm going to do it. And then when people saw this on screen, I think they saw the joy, how sort of silly it was. And they saw people on the screen that were real. They weren't, you know, uh, avatars of the perfect human. You know what I mean? They weren't like Brad Pitt or, or Angelina Jolie, like the like movie star good looks. These, these people were average looking people that had clearly lived life. And I think when you go to the movie, you're like... The average person is an average person, average looking person that's clearly lived life. They see someone up on the stage that they can re relate to. When you see a perfect person, that may be something to aspire to. But when you see a common person, you can identify with that person. Exactly. Like, oh, I know how you're feeling. Yeah, I'd want to do that too. Yeah, it's more of identity. Mm -hmm. So that's the, cool. the gatekeepers, sort of like the hedge funds in the in the the... The GameStop example, but like the gatekeepers of the film producers, the film distributors said, no, this isn't the formula. This isn't the formula. And since it's not the formula, it won't work. And Dolomite said, I'm going to do it anyway. And it worked in part because it wasn't the formula. You know, if you do something that's like you take the rules of Hollywood and you apply your amateur ability within that formula, you're gonna get a bad product. But if you have an amateur ability and an amateur sensibility, and you apply it outside of that formula, you're gonna get a unique product. You know, you're not stacking it up against everything Hollywood does, you're stacking it up against itself. I think speaking of, speaking of movies, we mentioned this the other day, I, which I really love, Cider House Rules. Mm -hmm. And in Cider House Rules, uh, there's a comment, I forget to who the lead was, Toby McGuire. Uh, Toby McGuire. And Toby McGuire. What was, Homer. What was this? Homer was the character. Homer said, sometimes you have to break the rules to do what's right. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the rules are there for a purpose. Uh, but sometimes they're not always right. Uh, sometimes you got to break the rules to do what's right. And so that's kind of what Dolomite was doing. I'm breaking the rules, but this is right for me. And as it turns out, it was right for a lot of other people, too. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, within the rules was right for a lot of people, too. But breaking the rules and doing what Dolomite wanted to do was right for him, too. Yeah. So it's not, there's not one way of doing it. Also, I'm sure it's infuriating that a filmmaker who studied film his whole life and seen all the great French and American and German films... The year that Dolomite came out, might have had a budget 
five times the size and a, a leading man that was a Hollywood commodity attached to it might have had a great casting director and a director of photography, might have done everything great, lit the scenes perfectly, they were acted perfectly well, and it didn't perform as well as Dolomite. And he says, I did everything right, and Dolomite didn't. But his film outperformed mine. And why is it? Because I, don't, I think there's a lot of this ethos in, in rock and roll as well. You can go to conservatory and study music and become a brilliant, I think that some of the most brilliant players are classical pianists. And you could have a career touring around the world playing in, in concert halls, you know, classical pieces. Um, and I think they're some of the most amazing instrumentalists in the world. Now, I think your average lead guitarist in a rock band has a fraction of the, the musical talent of a classical pianist. But they are the rock gods. They'll make more money. I mean, at least when rock was a thing, they'll make more money than a classical pianist because that's where the popular fascination is. Even though their, their musical skill, although, you know, a lot of rock guitarists had considerable musical skill, but it probably doesn't compare. It's probably levels below uh, like Arthur Rubinstein or Vladimir Horowitz or Martha Argerich. You know, if you take a look at Ingve Malmsteen, his musical understanding is probably a level below those great classical piano players. But uh, because of what the people want, if you give the people what they want, and a lot of times you have these rock and roll bands, they're not even, they don't even know how to play their instruments. But they write these passionate songs that sort of communicate this raw emotion and it touches a nerve with people more than a classical piece could. Yeah. I think we talked about music in the past, too. The, a Week in Review. Mm -hmm. uh, one, uh, I think it was a while ago, uh, we did music. So we're tying music in here now, David. Uh-huh. Um, so, yeah. I mean, we talked about uh, GameStop last episode and then all the razors and uh i think that the okay i'm looking at the hanlon's razor page now finagle's law anything that can go wrong will at the worst possible moment <laughs> i think that's what's happening to these hedge funds they borrowed all this stock and sold it with the promise to buy it back and return it and they said, oh, this will be fine. We've done this a million times. And then an online message board says, wait, they have to return it basically at the end of January. What if in the last couple weeks of January, we just went on a buying spree? <laughs> and these hedge funds are like, this is the worst possible time for you to realize that this is a thing you can do. You're screwing us. <laughs> uh-huh. Um, what did we talk about on Monday? Oh, Unity. I think that that, yeah. ship, that ship has sailed, honestly. I don't know. From what I'm seeing, in the media, it seems like that ship has sailed. You know, 45 senators voted against even having a trial for Donald Trump for inciting the insurrection. And I guess we talked about this on Monday. Unity doesn't have to mean everyone agrees. Right? That's right. Uh and I, but I think that both sides are defining unity as we're going to be united on our side. <laughs> so they might not even. And so that's never going to happen. Uh, things that are going on are, are a little worrisome. But I will say this. Don't you find that 
the news coming out of the White House is way more boring under the first full, <laughs> full week of Biden than it was for the last four years? Well, I was listening to it this morning and I, and I was thinking about uh, uh, the press conference and uh, I was thinking about, I wonder what those uh, reporters in that room is thinking. Like, wow, we haven't been able to ask this many questions in, <laughs> and, and so long. Uh, I forget. Uh, they're probably thinking, I forget how to ask a question. It's been so long. Yeah. Uh, but uh, Jen was there, the, the press secretary. She was just answering them. And they were very good answers, you know, and some of them she didn't have an answer. She said, I, I don't know. Uh, if you don't know, the best answer is, I don't know. Mm-hmm. You don't make something up. You say you don't know. And that's what they were getting. Yeah. And, when, uh, so, when you have 50 cameras pointed at you, you have to realize that if you make something up, it's on tape. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think when you start lying, <clears throat> when you start making things up or even lying, uh, what's going to happen is that uh, uh, you're you're underestimating the intelligence of your audience. Uh, and uh, I think underestimating people's intelligence is, is wrong. Uh, people are smart out there. They're going to figure this stuff out very quickly. Uh, and if not immediately, uh, they're going to challenge you on it, you know. And so uh, uh, I think truth, uh, being truthful, uh, is, um, is, is uh, necessary uh, as a, for a leader. You know, if you, uh, I think we mentioned this before, uh, a leader tells, pe- tells, tells their people the truth and uh, encourages them to move in, the, in a direction. A, a unified direction. You might disagree how to get there, uh, but you, but everyone agrees with the basic values of where we're going. Um, but if you lie to them, uh, you're really using them. You're under, underestimating their intelligence, and uh, and you're using them for your benefit. And that's that's not that's not unity. Mm-hmm. Now, bringing factions together by lying to them is not unity. Uh, that's division. Yeah, I guess my point was where I got started here is Trump was a lot of things, but he was not boring. (laughs) No, he was not. Um, And I kind of wanted to do a little segment. This is just a joke that I had where um, lessons from Donald Trump. So what lessons can you learn? What lessons can you derive and House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy went down to Florida and met with Trump at Mar-a-Lago. Let me see if I can pull up a picture of that. Because uh, it's a funny picture. Images. Google Images. Here it is. Can I just display this? Yes. Right. Yeah. Yes, you can. <laughs> Here they are. Uh, I think Jimmy Kimmel joked, here they are inside Saddam Hussein's palace. (laughs) It's actually Mar-a-Lago, the decorations. But um, so Trump, I have the article here. I know. So Kevin McCarthy went down there this week to get Trump's continued endorsement. And this is lessons from Donald Trump. Donald Trump's People issued a press release 
calling Trump's endorsement of McCarthy's continued endorsement the most important endorsement in the history of endorsements. Wow. So I think you can learn a lesson from Trump that it doesn't matter whether or not it's true. Of course, we just talked about telling people the truth. But as long as you say it, it's out there in the ether. So I think the Sons of Sequoia podcast is the most important podcast (laughs) in the history of podcasts. And I'm going to say that every episode, okay? (laughs) Yeah, because we are talking about things that are important. Uh We are talking about things that are the most important things that should be talked about and that you should listen to. Yes. Is that that how we should do it, David? Nobody has a better podcast than us. (laughs) That's right. We have the best podcast ever has been, (laughs) ever is, and ever will be. Yes. (laughs) That's that's right. Nobody cares more about... Nobody cares more about podcasting than us. Yeah. And no one can see a better podcast than the Sons of Sequoia podcast. That's the right. SOS, 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 SOS. That's where you should be. That's right. That's right. That's the greatest podcast in the history of podcasts. Yeah. SOS, Sons of Sequoia. <laughs> so I just, I think, I don't know, like you said, there is a point where you have to tell people the truth. But when it comes to being bullish on yourself, everyone can learn a lesson from Donald Trump. Well, uh, okay, let's tie it back to Dolomite. He yeah. was bullish on himself. Uh-huh. And people people buy into that. I mean, so we're not talking... I think telling people the truth is a leader, is, is necessary for a leader. But also, um, because if you don't, if you lie to them, you're going to create division. Uh, and also, uh, but also the, the, the thing here is that uh, we're talking about people and humans uh, and, and humans identify you, you have. We talked about belief and the truth. Uh, people can believe things, but it may not be logical. And those are two different things. Mm-hmm. And you can convince something, someone about something logical, but that doesn't mean they're going to believe it. Their belief is is founded in feelings and emotions and something that's deeper than just logic. Uh, but both are important. And so uh, a leader has to has to bridge that gap and balance both of those things. And a good leader. <laughs> okay, I'll say a good leader. You know, uh, and uh, and you have to, you have to think about uh, the people's belief systems and pe- people's emotions. You know, yeah. So there's a lot, lot more than there's a lot more to leading, a lot more than leadership, uh, than just doing the right thing. Uh, you have to bring the people with you. So, and and confidence, it's kind of like um, uh, you have to have confidence when you do something. Confidence in yourself, and uh, and that confidence in yourself sometimes is what will engage people to believe in you uh, not because what you're doing is right or wrong but because of your confidence mm-hmm. right i and, think also there's like uh let's go back to uh hanlon's razor what is it the 
we've talked about this before, the Dunning-Kruger effect. Oh, yeah. Where low-ability people overestimate their skill. Um, I think the more you know about something, the more doubts you have about your ability to accomplish things. That's why, I, like in, in music, a lot of times the best albums uh, that a band or an artist will make are their first albums or their first one or two albums because they know less. And so they sort of just plunge headlong into making a creative product. I think as they learn more, they begin to second guess themselves and that doubt gets communicated in their work. Yeah, that's very, very true. Yeah, but um, the Dunning-Kruger effect is very interesting. Uh, the corollary is that, uh, you know, intelligent people underestimate their ability and or, or high-skilled people underestimate their ability. Uh, I think because the more they know, the more they can see what they could have done. Uh, but if you have a low ability, you think just doing anything is better than and then what they did before, you know, mm -hmm. and it's all relative. Again, that gets back to people. Uh, you have to think about how people think and how people act and how people react and what people believe in and why they believe in things, you know. And uh, like you say, where people stand is where they sit. You have to see where people are. You know, you can talk about uh, uh, higher level types of self uh, actualization, uh, but they're not going to listen to you if they're hungry. Mm -hmm. They have, they have no shelter. You have to think about people. We're dealing with people. Yeah, I forgot like where I read this. It's in an old book, the classic literature. But I, it could have been Dostoevsky, or it could have been Dickens. Uh, could have been uh, Tale of Two Cities, or. But basically, it was saying revolutions. You know the the political people think that it's about the mind, think it's about ideas. But in their experience, revolution's about the stomach. If people are starving, they'll take up arms against their leaders. And they've seen in history, it's less about ideals than it is about scarcity and want. And the ideals are sort of like a veneer over the real needs of people in a revolution. That's why okay. I don't. That's a difference in the history. That's a difference between the history books looking at it, and when you live through it. Mm -hmm. Like, why would you take up arms with the Bolsheviks? Because you believe in their particular brand of Marxist ideology, or because if you take up arms with them, you're going to get a sack of potatoes for your family, <laughs> as opposed to no food for your family. It's a uh, it's not really about the ideals. It's about what people get. And people can make up, not make up, but people can formulate ideals to justify actions that are motivated by the stomach. Mm -hmm. I've, I've seen that over and over again. You can say anything, and there's a lot of smart people. They can spin that all different ways. And so the real motivation when you're de dealing with people is going to be, what are their what are their basic needs? What are where people where are people hurting, and what are their basic needs? Mm -hmm. 
Uh, and sometimes you have a solution, sometimes you don't have a solution, but you have to tap into those needs and those desires and those wants. There's a philosopher, Alexander Gramsci. I learned about him in school. And I don't know, I haven't actually looked at. Gramsci. Antonio Gramsci. Let's search this page for Gramsci. I knew it was Anne something. Okay. Um, it's called Gramscian hegemony. So he's a Marxist. He believes in Marx's communist theory. And I'm not even going to read this. I'm going to go from my memory. So this might be wrong. <laughs> but he, there's this concept of Gramscian hegemony. Hegemony is basically control, uh, rule. So how does the ruling class control the workers' class? Well, if a capitalist society accumulates enough wealth, they can make everyone comfortable, even with huge disparities in wealth. So the ruling class can have 99% of the wealth. The working class can have 1% of the wealth. But the, the society is so prosperous that that 1% allows you a comfortable life. So you don't really care that you don't have 99%. Yeah. Um, I think there's, there's some credence to Gramscian hegemony. And I think that's what Bernie Sanders rails against. He's like, yes, uh, you know, people do have more comfortable lives than they did 100 years ago. But that doesn't mean that 99% of the wealth should be concentrated in the hands of 1% of the people. Um, because there are still problems that could be solved with a more equitable distribution of wealth. I think also, uh, talking about humans, they're definition of comfortable life is what they're used to mm -hmm. and so the the one percent that are used to a very cushy life you start eroding that away and they're gonna they're gonna come at come after you yeah they're gonna yell foul they're gonna say let's change the rules with a little guy I can't buy my stock yeah <laughs> I because you're you're upsetting the, the their their lifestyle uh, which is very, very, very lucrative. Mm -hmm. I think people have different ideas or different things make them comfortable. I think that where you spend your money or where you don't spend your money is a tell of that. Like you don't particularly like traveling. So you have not, no you have not spent tens of thousands of dollars going all over the world and staying in fancy hotels because you'd probably rather sleep in your own bed at home. <laughs> that's true like you say the sidewalk in new york city is the same as the sidewalk in denver and it's like <laughs> if you don't enjoy traveling why should you spend your money there and if it provides you discomfort to be in a different city why should you spend your money there yeah well i'd rather spend my money other places yeah i i enjoy just just walking walking in a park close by walking in the uh, a trail and uh, walking around a lake uh, and it doesn't matter where the lake is because a lake is beautiful wherever it's at yeah I just enjoy that and so some people say oh that's terrible 
No, it's not. It may not be good for you. Uh, maybe you have to be in some remote place to walk uh, around a lake or in, or in the forest or in a trail. But I don't need that. Mm-hmm. Because the sidewalk here is made out of concrete, <laughs> just like the sidewalk in New York City. <laughs> I think for some people, it's a change of venue isn't um, driving 15 minutes down the road to a town that's not your hometown and exploring that. And they can't make the cognitive leap that if you go somewhere you haven't been, that's 20 minutes from your house, and you sort of explore that, that's the same as flying halfway across the country and exploring a town that you've never been to. Really, in principle, it is. But you can also explore the town for a whole day, get back in your car, and be home. And now people, I think they think, unless I get on a plane... I go hundreds of miles away. I'm not at home. I don't really feel like I'm exploring anything. It's sort of not having that safety net or saying, where am I going to stay? Oh, at this hotel or at this Airbnb. Like, that's exciting. You know, it's not exciting going home. That's boring. But for me, going home is exciting. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, like, I like going home. <laughs> yeah. And ex- uh, Dora the Explorer is not for everyone. Yeah. Because people but are it doesn't different. mean it's wrong. It doesn't mean it's wrong. It's perfectly fine. Some people need to do that, and some people don't need to do that. But I want to say, though, very quickly here, that you know, you and I uh, went to China. Yeah. Okay? We toured China, and uh, that's far from my home. And uh, I, there are parts of it I, I didn't like. I was uncomfortable. But there are also parts of it that I really did like, and it was life-changing, uh, to see another culture, to see other people, and there's some, we 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 made we made a couple of friends over there, and and it was great, mm-hmm. uh, and it was I can see the value in that, I can see the value in that, and some people uh, would have a much greater value than that than me, but I I enjoyed it, it was good, it was it was life changing, would I do it again? Yeah, I would do it again. Would I do it every single chance I get? No. <laughs> Because <laughs> I, I I'd rather be home more than China, mm-hmm. uh, but going to China was was very enjoyable. It was a beautiful place, and uh, the people were very uh, the people that we were around. And also, you know, we're walking out. What was that Nanjing Boulevard? Yeah, that was in Shanghai. Yeah, Shanghai. Wow, that was that was a great experience. It's it like it's really like Times life- Square in New York almost. It, it was yeah like. I'd say it's New York City on steroids is what it was like when we were there. Mm-hmm. It was it was wild. So I'm saying travel is I'm not saying travel is bad. For some people, it's good. It's good for everyone. Uh, I think it's valuable. But I like being home too. I, well, I'm just saying, like Gramsci says, if you're comfortable, basically, you'll allow the capitalists to control you. <laughs> so this is back to the communist artist. But comfort okay. means a lot. Comfort means a lot to a lot of people. Comfort is the reason why these people won't wear masks in Walmart because they find them uncomfortable. Now, if you're told you could save a life, they say, yes, but I'm uncomfortable. So I'm going to put this thing around my neck or I'm not going to bring it in at all. Uh, Now, some people, they feel comfortable traveling. The, the wonder, the awe of seeing stuff. It's no big skin off my back that I'm staying in a flea bag motel or a sketchy Airbnb. I'm in this different place, and that's exciting to me. And I get a thrill out of that. 
And uh, some people thrive in that feeling of uncertainty. They don't find discomfort in uncertainty. Just because something's uncertain doesn't mean it's uncomfortable. But the second someone starts to feel uncomfortable, they say, I don't know about this. Like, I don't know if this is right for me. So if you don't feel comfortable traveling, there's no real harm in not traveling if you don't need to. Uh, I think, and I don't know, John Stewart, when he was interviewed about what he learned on The Daily Show, he said, you know, move towards your discomfort. That's how you grow as a person. Uh, or like uh, my brother or your son, he had a uh, friend visit him, an old friend from high school. And the old friend said, I love doing things out of my comfort zone. And nothing seems to bother him. So what he really meant was, I love doing things out of your comfort zone. <laughs> right? When he says that, like, I'm going to do something and you're going to feel very awkward and uncomfortable. And you're going to look at me and I'm going to be happy as a clam. So am I really out of my comfort zone? That's what I was thinking. If he loves doing it, that's not out of your comfort zone. <laughs> <laughs> that's right in the middle of your comfort zone. I love doing it. And some people love that excitement. Yes. You know, and some people like do not like that excitement. It makes them uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And some people thrive on that type of excitement. And that's why there's different people doing different things. Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, this has been a good review. It has. We've reviewed the week. This is our first live stream on YouTube. No chats yet. Maybe I'll set up a Twitter and start tweeting about it. But uh, no one watched. Oh. Oh, good. You have. We have a chat room. Uh -huh. Yeah, we should have. We should have people uh, chatting and asking good questions, and we'll answer them if we can. Mm-hmm. That would be a great thing to do here next week. Well, yeah, I mean, someone will have to tune in first. This is a very new podcast with very few listeners. But it's the, the greatest podcast ever. It's the most important <laughs> podcast in the history of podcasting. And uh -huh. everybody said so. Um, I've nobody, heard it. Nobody knows more about podcasting than us. I've, so, I've heard that this is the greatest podcast ever. Yes. People have said that. So uh, I think we'll wrap it up for the week. We'll be back on Monday, Monday morning, 9 to 10, every morning, Monday through Friday. Um, that was fun. Been fun, David. Uh, talk to you later. Do you want to say your tagline? Yeah. Uh, keep, uh, what was it? Oh, keep on talking, but listen more than you talk. There you go. This has been the Sons of Sequoia podcast. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Have a good weekend, everyone. Bye.